Hello, and welcome to the Talking Precision Medicine podcast. In this series, we sit down with experts on the application of AI and big data analytics in the drug discovery space. Our guests are innovators, business decision makers, and thought leaders at the intersection of data and therapeutics. We discuss the promise, practice, challenges, and myths of AI and precision medicine. This show is brought to you by Genialis, and Raphael, our CEO, is your host. Genialis is focused on data integration and predictive modeling of disease biology to help accelerate the discovery and de-risk the development of novel therapeutics. Today, our guest is Tina Larson. Tina is COO of Recursion Pharmaceuticals, where she is tasked with building the team, the operations, and the culture to tackle Recursion's audacious goals. Tina has over 20 years of experience in the biopharmaceutical industry and was recently awarded the 2019 Distinguished Alumni Award from her alma mater, Colorado State University. In this episode, we talk about the language of multidisciplinary teams, recruiting top talent while fostering inclusivity, and the promise of melding tech and biology to advance treatments at unprecedented scale. Let's dive in. Thank you everyone for tuning in. Uh, Today, our guest on Talking Precision Medicine is Tina Larson. Tina is the Chief Operating Officer of Recursion Pharmaceuticals. And in case you've been living under a rock, you've probably heard of Recursion Pharmaceuticals. Uh, They certainly have one of the most prominent voices in the world of data-driven discovery and pharmaceuticals. But Tina, why don't you tell us, in your own words, uh, about Recursion? What's its mission? What are you guys doing and and what makes you different? Yeah, thanks, Raphael. And really a pleasure to be on the podcast today. So the the mission of Recursion is decoding biology to radically improve lives, uh, which is a pretty high-level mission statement, so I'll break that down really into its two parts. And so the, the second part of that is radically improving lives, and the way that we're doing that is by discovering new medicines. You know, we are in this realm of, this emerging realm of artificial intelligence for drug discovery companies, and so really the, the core purpose of what we're here to do is to find new medicines for patients that need them. The first part of that is the decoding biology really speaks to the novelty of our technique and taking advantage of where this just really unique point in time at the intersection of laboratory automation, modern biological techniques, and things like machine learning and computational power, and really bringing all of these very rapidly evolving new technologies to bear at creating this huge data set of biology. And that data set really in its simplest forms is that we are taking human cells and those cells are, we're figuring out ways that they can model diseases that we would want to treat. And then we take pictures of those cells and our pictures can look at a cell and we train machines to say like, this is a healthy cell and that's what it looks like, and this is a disease cell, and that's what it looks like. And then, and sometimes even as humans, we cannot distinguish the difference between those two things, but machines and, and learning algorithms can. And so we use that data set to then ask lots of questions, thousands of questions a week about how can we treat human disease by finding new medicines. That does sound like a, a very lofty and, and laudable goal. So just to, to say that back to you, so what makes recursion special is you guys operate at kind of this intersection of really high throughput uh, biology. So you mentioned automation and using modern techniques. Am I correct? You, your kind of core lab technique is, is kind of cell painting of genetically modified cell lines, uh, disease models, and of course the AI machine learning component. That's a lot. Is there a chicken and the egg? Does one of this come first or are you guys executing on all three fronts at once? Um, yeah, we have to execute on all those fronts at once, which is one of the reasons that recursion is such an incredible place to work and, and, and a reason that I am really excited to be 
here. It also makes it really hard to build this organization. And I think something that you know I've been watching for many years, I've been in the biotechnology industry for over 20 years. I was there and, and watched the growth of and participated in figuring out how to use recombinant DNA technology to, re, to produce new therapies called biologics which are not new anymore. They're, they're, they're kind of old now, but um, you know, that was very much what I did as an engineer early in my career. And so I think what's so interesting to be here now is that we're like at this point in time where there's a, a, a new convergence of technology that's allowing us to kind of take that next step um, in drug discovery and development. So I, I'm really excited to be here, uh, but we do spend a lot of time as an organization thinking about how do we bring all of these disciplines together? And I'm happy to kind of deep dive into more of, of all the ways that we think about that, but that is really core to our success of a company of how do we get a data scientist and a biologist and a chemist and an automation engineer all thinking about how are we going to generate a data set that can then be used to discover medicines. Yeah, let's let's dissect this a bit. We can either work forwards or backwards. So I, I like that the kind of the end product is this data set that then you sort of build the actual discoveries off of. But how do you think then about companies' organization structure? So you've got these very different disciplines. Are they siloed within the organization? How do you actually set up your company so that they, they can crosstalk? Yeah, we try very, very hard to break down silos. Um, we, we think about this a lot. We do have teams that sit together. So we have, you know, our data scientists tend to sit together. Our software engineers tend to sit together. There's some, uh, we talk a lot about uh, about whether we would mix that up and, and what the different ways of doing that are from just kind of a physical space. But the reality is we are multidisciplinary. Like that is what is absolutely key to solving problems in this way is that we need to get our biologists and chemists and data scientists and software engineers all thinking about problems in the same way. And so there's a lot of ways that that shows up in the organization. One that has been a huge learning for me coming from more a more singular industry in the, in the biotech industry where you kind of kind of develop a language, you know, yeah. you know, like if I if I was working at Genentech and I went to a conference and talked to somebody from Amgen or Biogen, you know, you very comfortably slip into this, this language that people in the biotechnology use to, to discuss what's happening. You know, coming here for the first time in my life, working at a tech company um, and, and really a tech meets biotech company, the biotech language isn't enough. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a lot of people here from big pharma. The big pharma language isn't enough. We have people here from tech companies that have never worked in healthcare before, right? And so the yeah. tech language isn't enough. And so we've almost had to create in some ways our, our own language. And that feeds like directly into the, the culture that we create of how do we enable these multidisciplinary teams to, to function really effectively. That's fantastic. And how old is Recursion? You guys have grown fast, but this has been a, a learning process for sure, no? Yeah, we're six years old, so so still very young, but um, we, we've had a lot of organizational learning in those six years. So as head of operations, it's probably going to fall at least somewhat under your, your watch. Then you have to now recruit for lots of different disciplines. You have to think about resource prioritization. Um, what is the thought process and kind of at what levels uh, of the team are those, are those decisions made? Yeah, so I think, you know, one thing that we did is because of how important culture is to us and these multidisciplinary teams, we 
um, invested in a chief people officer pretty early on. So we started recruiting for that um, late last year. I had the kind of luxury of being able to talk to some great chief people officers across the industry to really learn you know, what this could mm-hmm. look like and ended in and bringing in Heather Kirkby, who's now our chief people officer, who comes from an incredibly strong background um, in both tech. She's an engineer, a product manager, and then and then transitioned over to um, HR and, and people things at Intuit. And so, so that's gotcha. one example of just investing in mm-hmm. you know, a senior executive, a C-suite executive, that's their experience, that very intentional about things like culture and recruiting. Mm-hmm. We have a very elegant and incredibly talented talent acquisition team here to help us bring all of the people here. Not only do we have the challenge of bringing people from across all these disciplines, which is hard enough, but we are not located in a major hub. I, I moved from San Francisco to Salt Lake City to join Recursion, and Salt Lake City has an amazing, growing, very rapidly growing tech scene in particular, a very mm-hmm. strong life science scene. Um, but we're, you know, we're, we're not San Francisco, we're not Boston, and so we really have to go out into those markets and, and work hard to make sure people know about us and kind of get them excited about coming here. Maybe an unpopular opinion, but I would argue that's a strength more than a liability to be in Salt Lake and the Silicon Slopes. I mean, can't beat it for the cost yeah. of the access to the outdoors. So. Um, yeah, it has become, I, I learned to see it as a strength. I mean, I will be honest, when uh, when I first talked and the, the company was in Salt Lake City after 22 years working in the Bay Area, even mm-hmm. though I'm not from there, but I, my whole career was there. Uh, it, it wasn't obvious what the advantage was to me at first, but now that I'm here, mm-hmm. not only is it an incredible place to live, people can afford to live here, particularly mm-hmm. people early in their career, which we really need. Um, but also we're a little bit outside of the, what can be a little bit of an echo chamber sometimes mm-hmm. in, in these major markets. and, and and so we've been able to bring people from all over the place together to kind of form something new, which is really fun. Uh, and Recursion is in Salt Lake because Chris Gibson, your, your co-founder and CEO, did his PhD there. Is that correct? Yeah, and I would say even um, more than Chris doing his PhD work here, his partner. She's an amazing medical doctor, leader, and her career is here. And you know, and I think speaks a lot to the fact that Chris is doing the hard work of growing a company here in Salt Lake City and in support of his partner's career. It makes a lot of sense. And it frankly is consistent with what I glean as, as part of the culture at Recursion, really kind of focusing on life balance. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that commitment starts at the top. Leaders have a huge impact on how organizations think and behave. Um, and that was a big selling point honestly, for me coming to work for Chris, and we could dive deeper into some of the things that the ways we think about things like diversity and inclusion. But, you know, as a female leader, uh, coming to a tech company, moving my whole family, Mm -hmm. uh, it was really important to me to work for a leader that could appreciate and value what that experience might be like. Yeah, let's let's talk about that. I mean, you know, the tech industry probably has earned a lot of its black eyes about um, inclusivity and diversity, and certainly there there are organizations that are looking to make changes there. I think life sciences is probably, at least in terms of gender inclusion, a bit better than tech, but you know, still it's not uncommon to go to a conference to see a panel of a bunch of dudes up there. So, how does Recursion think about this? Is it deliberate, or do you just kind of have this inclusivity baked into the way you do do business? Yeah, it's a great question, and I think the answer is it's both. I think the baked in part kind of as I mentioned, is that the caring about it starts at the top, right? If, mm-hmm. if your CEO, if your executive team doesn't truly care, 
no matter what initiatives you roll out or what goals you set, the rest of the company is not going to care. Like people know, people are really smart and they pick up on uh, what's truly important to the leaders of the company. And so that's where it starts. Mm-hmm. Um, having said that, we have you know intentionally translated that to make sure that 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 message and that caring is really visible in, in several ways. One way is you know we we try to be very kind of visible and um, about it on social media. Um, and and just in a way, we don't really actually have a formal plan around. Not necessarily, right. but um, you know, when we're out, you know, on our social media networks, I think being comfortable taking a stand, you know, in terms of like why this is important, how it's important, uh, when people are doing it well, like supporting them and, and kind of highlighting that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's something that I think we all have the, the freedom and actually enjoy doing at the company, just to show that that visible commitment mm-hmm. to diversity and inclusion, which is good for for everybody. You know, more specifically, we did um, for our 2019 goals. We identified that in order to improve the diversity of candidates um, that were in, it was kind of in the pipeline of people that we were interviewing for positions, we really felt that we needed a, a pretty clear company goal uh, to kind of remind ourselves and our hiring managers that we just need to put in a little bit of extra work to make sure that we're going out and really filling our pipeline uh, with the best candidates. Mm-hmm. Um, and those best candidates may not live in this state, they may not be in the social circles, you know, of people, um, you know, at the company. And so we really need to go out and, and work to do that. And so we set a very specific goal to have um, a very high percentage of our positions include at least one qualified candidate that's from a historically underrepresented group. And we left that a little bit vague because these things are hard to measure and you have to be really careful mm-hmm. about how you measure them. And and we, and we and there's no, I mean, we always hire the best candidate. I mean, that's a very clear kind of standard for us, but we have seen kind of reminding ourselves that we have to do that extra work to, to yeah. diversify our talent pool. We've seen a much broader diversity kind of in the pipeline of candidates coming in and it has resulted, you know, for example, in the number of women at the company has increased Mm -hmm. from 20-something percent to about 40 percent, you know, in the last year. So I think these are things that if you do have the right attitude and behaviors and beliefs coming from leadership and then you put some very specific goals behind them, you can make a lot of progress in in a pretty short amount of time. I think you guys have set up a great model and, and you, you know, you mentioned you've got this social media cadence if, you know, to our listeners. If you don't follow Recursion and its various mouthpieces on social media, you should. It's a lot of fun and they do a great job on the marketing side. But Satina, so, you are, you know, a top executive now at, at what's one of the most visible and promising young biopharma in, in the country, in the world. How'd you get here? Tell us a bit about your story and, and where have you spent your career so far? Feels like a lot of pressure when you put it that way, but uh, no, no <laughs> but thank pressure. You. Hey, congratulations! <laughs> yeah, thank you. Woo. Uh, yeah, so I think my career. So I come from a background of, in biochemical engineering. Um, I have a degree in chemical engineering, and uh, you know, I I started at Genentech um, in 1996, uh, which was quite a few years ago. And at that time, it was we were right on the cusp of when things like antibodies to treat cancer, these recombinant human antibodies were just about to be coming to patients, right? And and so, and at the time, as a, as, a, as a young engineer, you know, I came into this situation where we had this incredible potential medicine to give to patients, in this case, women dying of, of breast cancer. Um, it had been through the, the clinical trials. We, um, you know, the data showed um, the potential of the drug, but we actually couldn't manufacture enough of it fast enough um, because we hadn't really learned how to, we didn't have the technology to learn how to scale this up to get this drug out to the thousands of patients that needed it. That was like my first kind of day um, and, and, and first lesson coming into the industry.
industry. And it just like started what's been over 20 years for me of how can we use technology? How can scientists, engineers come together and, and figure out all the ways that we can improve medicines that are, that are going out for these like really serious unmet medical conditions? So, so I spent you know about two decades of my life at the company Genentech, which was then bought by Roche. Then I went to a small company and we launched a novel antibiotic in, in the space of antibiotic resistance. And yeah, right as I was right in the middle of that launch, that commercial launch of the antibiotic, uh, Recursion reached out and started a conversation with me. And so it actually, I was immediately excited about the company. You know, I've been looking for years about like, who is the company that is going to truly be able to apply technology to change the way that things are done? And I think that's very hard to do. And so I saw Recursion's approach and was really excited immediately. It did take Chris many months and many conversations and and um, kind of a, a pleasant relentlessness <laughs> to yeah. convince me that it was worth moving my family to Utah. Good on, good on him. He seems to be a true believer. So yes, absolutely. That, that helps a lot. That's very he's very compelling. <laughs> and so you know you've you come in with a lot of you know experience under your belt at Genentech, obviously, which is a famously great company to work for. Um, I hope you had a similar experience. Absolutely. But but surely growing you know, startup is unlike anything else. So how have you grown into this role, especially as uh, Recursion has grown as a company? Um, and where would you say the company is in its growth plans today? Yeah, so I, I think I was lucky in that the last company before Recursion, we grew from about 60 to over 200 people. And so I saw just that phase of growth of a company, which has a, a lot of interesting and unique challenges. And that experience really helped me, um, you know, being on the executive team of that company and just kind of seeing how you grow a company of that size was really helpful experience. And one of the things that I was able to bring here to Recursion was able being able, when I got here, we were probably about 90 people. We're uh, roughly 160 people today and continue to grow. And so I, I had a little bit of a sense of, I, I, I kind of know what's coming. <laughs> you know, I, I'd already experienced uh, what that phase of growth looks like where a lot of people here hadn't been through that before. So I think that was something that it was, I was immediately able to contribute to the company, which felt good because I had so much learning to do um, in, in so many other areas. I mean, just understanding the technology, you know, I had to really approach my job with a lot of humility um, and, and just realizing that there's just a lot of things about machine learning and cloud computing and, and other things that I really was not grounded in. Um, and that did feel really uncomfortable. And, and so I kind of feel, I described to people, you know, my experience here, even after a year, is almost like studying for finals every day, <laughs> right? Um, uh, just because there's so much to learn um, and so many wonderful people here to learn from. You know, I, I think something else that I've had to grow um, into this role is just appreciating that the models, you know, all these years of experience, some of it is really relevant in terms of, you know, like, you know, what people care about, how you lead people, um, how you grow a company. But some of it, you know, recursion is really unique. You know, a tech first biotech is a new breed of company. And sometimes experience helps a lot. And sometimes it's just realizing that um, my experience is actually not relevant in this situation. And I need to be, um, I've had to learn a lot to slow down, make sure that I really understand what we're talking about, um, ask a lot of questions, even when I feel like I probably, you know, sometimes as an executive, you feel like you you shouldn't be the smartest one in the room. I'm never the smartest one in the room here, and that's okay. Uh, and um, you know, and, and and really just kind of having that, like learning to while we're moving at an incredible pace here and things are going mm -hmm. so fast, like learning how to like sometimes slow down and make sure that that we all really understand and are really you know asking good questions. 
Yeah, I, I think the humility in the startup world is especially important and maybe in the life sciences world as well. There's, there's just so much we don't know and shouldn't pretend that we do. If you had to put your finger on one, one challenge that came as a surprise, something that you either didn't realize you'd have to think about or something you thought you knew and turns out you didn't, can you share something that, that surprised you how hard it was? So, so I've had a lot of surprises, and I think one of the ones that resonates a lot is coming not only to a tech company, but you know, a, a young company, and some of the the cult, the, the big cultural differences between what's kind of maybe more traditional biotech or pharma, and and one that really stands out to me is how collaborative this community likes to be. Open sourcing information, open sourcing code, using open source code, um, giving mm-hmm. away co- <laughs> code. Uh, you, know, you know, like this is a concept. Generally, you know, the kind of the training that I learned coming up in more of a, a biopharmaceutical context is there, there's certainly a level of of sharing, but there's also quite a, a strong level of secrecy and competition mm-hmm. in, in order to kind of protect your, your key value, and which is always a really difficult balance, right, to be both a good member of the scientific community and also uh, make sure you're you know, keeping the value for your company. I had thought that I'd come from environments um, where we actually were quite good at trying to kind of publish and, and be a part of the scientific community and collaborate where we could. But to here, I've learned that there's a whole new level of just mm-hmm. really this sense of people being as or even maybe even more dedicated in some cases to like the global community of learning than to the specific company they're working at. And so that's been a really mm-hmm. interesting like learning and, and it certainly challenged my thinking about, um, you, know, you know, how we, how you run a business and kind of participate in, in this like larger collaboration of technology. I think this is one of the most interesting and maybe underappreciated aspects of the blurring of lines between tech and life science. The tech community really does have, at least in a lot of circles, a tradition of sharing. I mean, even Google and Amazon and these giants open source a ton of their AI developments. And in the world of bioinformatics and biological data science, it's almost like the community isn't going to trust a black box. So you have to open it up, right? Whereas in life science, IP is everything. And we've had to drag big pharma kicking and screaming to create sort of pre-competitive data sets and things like that. But here you guys go and you open source the RxRx1 data set. Can you maybe tell the audience a bit about what is this data set? What went into the decision to make it public and what's been the community? response to that. Yeah, absolutely. So the RxRx1, once again, this was a learning for me when I first um, heard that our team, you know, was excited about releasing this data set to the public. You know, my my initial reaction was like, oh, that's our core, you know, property. Uh, why would we just put it out there to the whole world? Yeah. So um, for listeners, this was, this was, I guess, your first complete package data set of cellular images, and it was large. I'll, I'll have to dig yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, so, so I can definitely walk you yeah. through it. So we made this decision to release the RxRx1 data set. Um, we did that via a Kaggle competition, and that actually, that competition is going to be coming to an end soon, and we're going to announce the winners at NeurIPS um, in December. And that data set is about 300 gigabytes of data, which is more than 100,000 biological images. Um, it's over a thousand different genetic contexts that those images are representing, and it's over time. There were images captured over 51 weeks, so almost a year's worth of images, um, and kind of a similar number of different batches. And, and so the idea there was to give uh, the community a sense of all of many different images of biology, different cell types, different contexts, um, a sizable data set at 300 gigabytes, 300 plus gigabytes, um, and then some of the noise and variation that can come over time, uh, batch-to-batch variability, just to kind of give a sense of, of what we deal with every day. And so we, we made the decision to, to release that data set, and it's been an incredible response by the community, which has been fantastic to see. 
you know, on, on the flip side, I, I think it's also important to know that it's a very, very small percentage of our total data set. So uh, we have over three petabytes of this type of data and these images. Uh, we're producing about 70 or 80 terabytes a week um, of this type of data. And so this data set represents less than 1% of what we generate in a week of data. And so it, it seemed like a really good balance of kind of giving people access to a, a sense of what we do. And then also for us, an incredible opportunity for the community to come and compete in this competition and, and teach us things that, that we hadn't been able to do with our data, which is just really, you know, just a, a wonderful thing about this kind of open sourcing and open collaboration. It's really cool. Um, and I'm, I'm I'm excited to see the the outcome of the uh, the Kaggle competition as well. I think uh, it certainly seemed from the internet that you guys got a lot of different groups excited to throw their hat in the ring and see what they could learn from the data. Yeah, absolutely. I think it was um, a particularly fantastic day when I read that uh, Anthony Goldblum, the CEO of Kaggle, said that this was the first Kaggle competition he'd actually entered because he was so interested in seeing the the biological images. So that, that was a pretty happy day here. <laughs> Very cool. So let me let me ask you some questions about your clinical work. So everything we've discussed thus far is more or less around the discovery part of drug development. You know, how you figure out, as you said at the beginning, decoding biology and maybe finding the right targets or, or positioning compounds. What does recursion have going on in the clinic and what do you see as sort of the next year of milestones there? Yeah, so we have two compounds at the clinical trial stage. One is currently in a phase one trial. And so phase one is the, the kind of the safety trials uh, for the drugs. And that's a compound for cerebral uh, cavernous malformation, which is a rare genetic disease. And, you know, and I think it's just important to note that while we are applying a lot of cutting edge technology to the drug discovery portion, when we, at this point, at least when we get into the, the human clinical trials, we're doing that the way, um, you know, per all of the FDA guidance, right? There's nothing, you know, we're, we're not using AI to, to change the way that, that, that clinical trials are done. Uh, I think there's a lot of interesting ways that that could be done in the future, but I, but I think that's important right. to note. And so those clinical trials will proceed in conjunction with the FDA as, as, as any other compounds in medicines and development. Our, our second compound is for neurofibromatosis 2. This is also a rare disease, uh, once again, a genetically inherited rare disease. And that's a compound that we actually, in when we, we discovered the hit on our platform, uh, went out and found who in the world um, had the IP. And that actually, that IP was actually arrested in a university. And so we in-licensed that IP from the university. And it had already been in humans in a different indication. So there's already some human data available for that. And so now we're working on our plans to go to the health authorities to look at setting that up for a phase two trial. So that's where we are with those compounds. And I think that that last story is particularly um, descriptive of what we do um, initially with our technologies. Now that we're, you know, that we're building this large data set with all these biological images and we can ask so many questions and we're running right now about three to 400,000 experiments a week. And that grows all the time. The, the initial questions we're asking of our technology platform are of the hundreds of thousands, millions of drugs sitting out there, shelved at pharmaceutical companies or elsewhere in the world, are any of those, those are all known to impact biology somehow, is it possible to repurpose any of those into disease areas that have been um, somewhat neglected, like um, small population rare diseases? And so both of these compounds, these two clinical trials, these, these two compounds that are in clinical trials are both in that area of finding something that was already a chemical known to the world, but hadn't, and then repurposed purposing it into a different context, into a different disease. So those mm -hmm. are the first questions we've been asking our platform and are really excited. I think increasingly now we're getting to ask a whole broader set of questions and a broader set of diseases of not only how do you repurpose drugs, but how do you design new drugs right. um, 
that target novel biology, which is the really exciting part about the growth and expansion of the platform. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I think for those out there who are thinking about how to start a biotech or start a biopharma, if you have a way to do a repurposing platform, it makes a lot of sense because your milestone is to get into the clinic as fast as you can. And if there's a safety profile for a compound out there and it works, you know, all the better. You you speed it up, you can get things in the hands of patients faster and hit your proof points. But it does seem, especially based on the recent papers by In Silico Medicine and, and just today there was an announcement from Deep Genomics in Toronto that you know actually inventing new chemicals is, is is going to be a really hot area for AI. And uh, I'd love to, to see what recursion has to contribute to that as your AI kind of expands into other parts of the, the R&D workflow. I was just thinking about the NCLCO and deep genomics papers. We were actually just talking, we were just talking about that internally, but maybe I won't comment on that. But I will comment on, you know, looking about, you, you talk about like, how do you build a biotech or a company? And I think one thing that, you know, we think a lot is like, also, how do you build a platform company, right? How do you build, build a platform company that's going to impact biotech? And I think I'm incredibly impressed Impressed by the the team, you know, certainly even before I got here, being very disciplined about, um, you know, asking the most impactful yet simplest questions mm-hmm. first to prove the technology, and then taking it to the next step. And I think beyond repurposing in, into rare disease, being yeah, a, certainly like a capital efficient, a timeline efficient way to get into the clinic. It's also really important to, to understand that that is a, was a really good place to make sure that we could validate the platform mm-hmm. against something understood. You know, a, a monogenic loss of function disease, we understand what causes that disease. Yep. And so yep. we can really, you know, kind of have some some ground truth, if you will, in terms of validating what our, our platform's discovering. Now, as we move into areas like immunology, oncology, neuroscience, infectious disease, well, maybe infectious disease, we know it's causing infectious <laughs> disease, but, uh, you know, some of these areas like immunology, sure. for an example, we, we don't necessarily have so much clarity on, on what's causing the disease. And so I think it was important for us, not only just from a kind of an efficiency of using our, our money mm-hmm. perspective and for like accessing patients that needed help and, and were being underserved perspective, but also to really to prove our technology platform can work in some Something where the context is a little better understood, and now that's given us the confidence to go into you know this world of creating new chemical entities against more complex diseases that are less well understood, and it won't feel like so much of a, a black box because we've already proven out the technology on a, a simpler question, if you will. You know, that makes a lot of sense. I think it, it's absolutely the right strategy. Um, I was reading somewhere, it may have been in the news or, or on one of your bios, that you guys have actually done your, your first remote team acquisition. Tell me a bit about that. What, who, who did you bring in and what are they doing? And, and how do you uh, think about managing a remote team in addition to your headquarters? Yeah, so so the remote team is a vivarium. And so a vivarium is um, a facility that has rodents for testing drugs before they go into people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and I think this is something that all drugs before they go into people have to go through this animal testing stage. Right. And so we had, it's something that we had really thought about because this becomes, you know, we can, you know, make drug discovery much more rapid, but then you kind of hit this, like the next bottleneck um, after you do hit identification, you know, validate mm-hmm. your lead, then you, then you run into this kind of bottleneck of, of animal testing. And so we had the opportunity to bring on a fantastic team at a vivarium um, in the Bay Area. And so that's the first remote acquisition that we made. And then that's allowed us to bring 
to kind of control the pace and, and quality uh, of the animal testing that our compounds go through. So that was a really important acquisition of kind of like moving from the, the in vitro or the, the laboratory testing um, into this animal testing, um, you know, which is part of, unfortunately, <laughs> you know, what every drug has to go through um, sure, you know, before sure. it goes into people. We also have our um, computational chemistry team. Uh, mm-hmm. Our The founding member of that team is actually in Boston. Okay. Um, and, and that was just, a, that was more of a case where we, we tried really, really hard to get the talent that we wanted here to Salt Lake City. And in every other case, we have worked hard and we have actually been able to bring the talent here to Salt Lake mm-hmm. City. If, if, if it didn't already exist here, about, about 40% of our company, we relocated to Utah to, to work at Recursion. Mm-hmm. And so we've been very successful doing that. Um, in this case, we, we just simply could not could not get Jorge here. And so, yeah. uh, uh, you know, for, for commitments, um, you know, that, that he has um, back in Boston. And, and so, so we also have him there. And we have to be creative about how, how we think about talent. He comes and visits us one week um, every month. Mm-hmm. Um, we have some team go and visit him, um, which is a little bit of an opportunity to kind of maybe get out of the office and, and, and sure. kind of like think and interact in, in a different place. And, and Boston is not a bad place to interact if you're doing tech. Yes, not, not a bad environment, actually. It's probably not a bad thing for our team to get out there every once in a while, right? And, um, you know, so, so I think those things are have worked really well. We try, you know, with our facility, the vivarium um, in, in the Milpitas area, you know, one thing we just think about is like, how do we, it's really hard to work in a remote facility, you know, to kind of be disconnected from headquarters. And so, um, you know, and, and we're constantly learning, but we make sure, for example, that you know, we have an all hands with everybody here in Salt Lake every week, you know, which we try to keep it fun and, and keep people updated on what's going on and, and hear what people are doing. And so we kind of find ways to make sure that they're, you know, always zoomed into that meeting, you know, um, that we can like, sometimes we have meetings where we make sure that we can see them, you know, which is a little bit technically hard <laughs> in our facility, because yeah. um, we have, you know, 150 people on this side and only about a dozen people on that side. Right, right, but, you know, right. we just try to think about ways, um, how, how can we include them in, you know, our holiday parties, like, like make them feel like they're part of the company. I, I can imagine that um, you've got a lot to offer people, though. I, I read you have something like a 70-foot climbing wall in your new facility. I would, I would work for you guys just for the climbing wall. I know. It's funny. So, we, um, so we're located in actually downtown Salt Lake City in, in, a, in a mall that had become, um, there was a new mall built, so this mall had become kind of partially abandoned, yeah. um, and now it's being reimagined into kind of a, a work, live, entertain hub. Um, mm-hmm. It's a fun place to work, but we took the former sporting goods store in the mall um, and we can and we put laboratories in we put desks in and there's a 70 foot climbing wall which I mean to be totally honest we could not afford to take out <laughs> even if we wanted to it probably would not have been a good use of our of our funds um, mm-hmm. uh, which, which is fantastic because it's actually become this like centerpiece for the space uh, people climb on it every day and when I go out into the world and I'm talking about recursion everyone's all be like oh that's the company with the climbing wall and so I'm like well yes we have a climbing wall but we also do <laughs> drug discovery using uh, technology, but yeah, but yes, and, and we have a climbing wall. <laughs> that's really, that's amusing. Well, the things you get known for, it can't, can't hurt to get yeah, know. known for, for offering your, your employees, you know, good quality of life. That's it's a funny. good visual. We had my, one of my favorite days this year was we have a kid's day where everybody's families are invited on site for the day. Mm-hmm. And we had a game where the, um, the parents climbed the climbing wall and we gave the kids Nerf guns and they got to shoot Nerf bullets at their parents while they're climbing the wall. And it was just, that's it was so much fun. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
Yeah, I remember back in the day when I worked in um, sort of synthetic biology in the Bay Area. This was almost a decade ago. I used to puddle hop from Oakland to Salt Lake to go climbing in big and little cottonwood canyons because including the airport transfers, it was faster than driving up to Tahoe or, or Yosemite on the weekend and a lot less crowded. Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, Salt Lake is I, just this really underappreciated gem. The airport here is amazing. And we actually, we have a transit stop right outside of our mm-hmm. building so I can walk out. Like I can be at the airport in the terminal in 12 minutes and be in San Francisco in an hour and 10 minutes, <laughs> you know, flight. Yeah. So yeah, and the outdoor recreation here is absolutely incredible. I am actually originally from Colorado. So I was born mm-hmm. and raised in Colorado. So with my husband. And so we love the mountains. That's been a natural fit for us. We always thought Colorado was better than anything because that's what happens when you grow up in Colorado. You, you think that, but you know, here we're so close to the mountains. It's incredible. I live in Salt Lake City. I have a short commute to work and I can be like on the chairlift in Park City in 30 minutes. It's just, it's just really amazing. Hard to argue with that. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely for the outdoor crowd. It's kind of mm-hmm. a no-brainer in my mind. <laughs> Closing closing thoughts, if there's anything in particular you'd like to plug or promote or just um, leave the, the listeners with about recursion, I guess my, my last question, which you can either answer or ignore, is what, what's the next thing that we should all look out for? What what do you think is going to be the um, sort of the next milestone that, that you're able to kind of forecast or, or uh, predict for? Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to give a little bit of a, a longer term answer. I, I, I don't I don't love speaking to kind of shorter term milestones yeah, sure. and, and still ready to give them out. But for me, what's important about recursion and, and honestly, even other companies you know, in this AI for drug discovery, you know, the milestones that I'm really excited about is like, when do these medicines actually start impacting people, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that starts out in, in clinical trials, you know, and, and eventually it's, it's a long path to, to get these things all the way to market. But I think right now, the AI for drug discovery industry is very young. Um, and there's a lot of, and, and, and like anything young, there's just kind of a little bit of chaos trying to figure out uh, uh, what the best approaches are, where the best bets are. And it's really exciting to be a, you know, a leader in that industry. And so I think what you should look forward to from recursion, as well as you know, what we should look forward to to any company in this space is um, how is all of this you know, fantastic use of technology actually translating into medicines mm-hmm. that are impacting people, right? And, and I think just, um, and I just wanted to end with that because I think it's really easy to get super excited about sexiness of the technology because it is so sexy and it's so exciting. And we're, we're just able to do things today that we couldn't do five years ago. And that's really exciting. And so we should continue to invest in that. You know, we grand ambition to create this map of biology, which is exciting. And um, we are going to do it. I, I, I absolutely believe in that mission of recursion. But it's really important, you know, looking forward for the next few years, what's important to show that while we're creating that map of biology, that's actually translating into meaningful products for people. And so I think that's what we will focus on in, in terms of what's important about what we're generating is, is how those, man, those medicines actually translate into people. And I just encourage all of us in the entire industry to make sure that that's what we're, we're focused on. I think that's a perfect answer. It is ultimately about the patients, not the technology, but Lord knows the technology is going to help us get there. Absolutely. I love the technology. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) Sometimes I think it's easy to talk so much about the technology Mm -hmm. that we forget a little bit what problem we're solving. Well, I'm looking for great things. I'm I'm glad to have gotten to know some of the folks on your team through the Alliance for AI and Healthcare and, and other venues. And uh, I hope we get to stay in touch. Tina, thank you very much for joining us today. It was an absolute pleasure, Raphael. Thank you. This has been episode 16 of Talking Precision Medicine. Please share it with your colleagues, leave a comment or review, and stay tuned for the next one. Thanks for joining the conversation.